Okay, we are in Galatians chapter 6 this morning. Chapter 5, we endured the weeks there. As we get into chapter 6, we encounter uh, even further extension of the practical application of what Paul has been teaching. And so he, he kind of gets right into it in the very first verse. He says in verse 1 of Galatians 6, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fall, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. So we find that immediately, the, the, the first word, brethren, so we'll remember that just for sake of context, that here we have Paul addressing these Judaizers and this false doctrine that we have to have circumcision as part of, or any other rite or ritual or work associated with our salvation. Our, we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ and that alone. And as a result of that justification, we enter into this brotherhood, this one family of God. We're going to talk about that here in just a moment. But first, I want to talk about the why here he begins to address this because there is division within the body of Christ in the churches of Galatia. Some are siding here with the Judaizers, some are siding here, and whether they have chosen a side or not, or they were trying to remain neutral and faithful to the Word of God, there is some contention as a result. And so what we need to understand is that unity within the body of Christ is a representation to the world around us of the authenticity of Christ. Turn with me to John chapter 3, excuse me, John chapter 13. And when I talk about unity within the body of Christ, what we're not talking about is ecumenicism. We're not talking about everything goes, right? There used to be a period of time uh, growing up in a Mormon household, there was a distinction and a clear-cut line, we are not like them. That, 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 that was the case. That's how I was raised to understand that there was a difference between Mormonism and Christianity. Now, we, being born again, we realize that there is, in fact, a difference. One is a true gospel and one is a false gospel. However, the tone in the Mormon church has changed. There is a, a real push and a, a, an effort to be considered just another Christian denomination. If we name the name of Christ, therefore we must believe the same, which is not true. And it's not true even within uh, other Christian circles. And so we have to understand that we're not just uh, arms open wide, everybody's the same. There is some distinction to be made, and that distinction is to be made through what the Word of God says. But for you and I as believers, uh, with those who are authentic, who are also believers, there is a unification and in John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus tells us, uh, actually, let's begin in verse 34. He said, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So there's this unity, this common love within the body of Christ. And he tells his disciples, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. So here he is speaking to disciples, and so we interpret this as, as this uh, familial love, that there is this concern and care amongst the body of Christ for the body of Christ. There's times that we have as a body, as another church, prayed for other churches 
whatever circumstances are happening, knowing that we want to see unification and restoration within the body, knowing that there are struggles happening over here. So we'd pray for those churches. It was was an expression of our love and concern for those fellow believers. And as a result of that, we have this witness to the community, to the world around us, of the authenticity of Christ. Further, and more to the point that Paul is making, is this idea that we are, because of our justification, and we'll remember that because of justification, we are adopted into the family of God. We're brought into the same family. And it doesn't matter, the old saying that you get to choose your friends, but you can't choose your family is also true within the family of God. Because I don't get to choose who comes to faith and who doesn't come to faith, but God already knows, and was willing to send his son to, to die for all of them, no matter who they were, whether I like them or not. So we are reconciled to Christ through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And we also need to understand that we are reconciled to one another as the result of what Christ has done. So he says, brethren, this is not something that you and I would necessarily pursue. There might be some engagement with others, but this is specifically in the context of believer to believer. We see somebody overtaken in sin. We're going to help deliver them and restore them from that. We may engage in that in the life of unbelievers. I'm not saying that we should neglect that altogether, but this is specific instruction to you and I, believer to believer, brethren. In Ephesians chapter 2, as we've been studying through that, if you'll turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 2, as we've studied through on Thursday nights, we, we identified early on that there is a common theme and sort of an underlying theme of unity being discussed within this book. And in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, we have two things happening here. He says, Now, in Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Now, we talked about this, and there's, there's a twofold meaning here. There is a separation between us and God, and the reconciliation that is being discussed here is our reconciliation to the Lord through what Christ has finished. But as a result of that, and what we're exactly what we're talking about this morning, is this reconciliation of ourselves with other believers. Jews and Gentiles are being specifically discussed here in the book of Ephesians, which would cover every person that has ever been born on this earth. You're one or the other. And so here he he talks about this middle wall of partition being broken down. We are reconciled to God, just as we have that example of the veil being torn from top to bottom at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now the way into his very presence is symbolized and recognized as being open and provided for but there's also this reconciliation. He says in verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of two, one new man, so making peace. So here are the Jews and the Gentiles brought together into the same family by the same mechanism, faith. And he that reconciles, that verse 16, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were not. So there's this preaching that is happening both to the Jews, those who were close to God, they were his people, 
They'd receive the oracles of God, as we read in Romans chapter 9. That was the chief benefit that they have. They were in special relationship with him, uh, and, and they're a special relationship continuing with him going forward. Yet, there is this promise made all the way back in Genesis that God is going to restore not just Jews, but mankind. And he establishes this lineage through Abraham as an illustration of justification by faith, as an illustration of how Christ was going to redeem, to, to provide a lineage, as it were, for the promised deliverer, for the Messiah. He says in verse 18, For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. We are reconciled to one another. We join the same community, fellow citizens, fellow uh, children of the same God. And we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, verse 21, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows up unto a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. We have this working of God where he places each individual within the body of Christ, within this one body, within this one family, specifically and with purpose and intent, that they may have the fruit and the effect wherever they may be. So there is this representation to the world around us. There is this because we are the same family in Christ, we seek to see those delivered from their hardship, delivered from what they are caught in. We also find that there is this idea of preservation of the body. That when we see sin in the camp, as we look at the Old Testament examples, when we see sin in the camp, we deal with that sin. And God, throughout his word and his interactions in the Old Testament, had given Israel specific methods and ways that they would deal with sin. And the reason that they would deal with the sin was always specifically to preserve the rest of the camp. So here we have a brother who's taken in a fall. We're going to talk about what that means here in a moment. Somebody within the same camp, somebody in the same family. We encounter them caught up in sin, and what do we do? We engage with them so that we might preserve, we might reconcile them, bring them back to God. Not only that, but that we might preserve the rest of the body of Christ. We're looking out for those who might be stumbled by what's happening. In Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, you know, I'm not convinced that church brings us to any point of salvation. It's not a mechanism. It isn't a work unto salvation. It's just, it, if we're going to say that, that's like saying I have to be circumcised. We'd be just another Judaizer. However, God in his sovereignty has established fellowship within the body of Christ so that we might accomplish certain goals, so that we might do certain things. In Hebrews chapter 10, for example, Verse 24 and 25, let us uh, 
consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. Right? So there is this accountability. There is this interaction with one another. There is a provocation and an inspiring to move on and to be better in the conduct that we hold and representation that we have of who Jesus is, provoking unto love and to good works. Those things that would clearly articulate to the world around us who Christ is. And he says in verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as their manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So there's this exhortation, this pushing on, this this instruction, and that's part of what fellowship provides for us. It provides a layer of accountability. It provides a layer of instruction. It provides a layer of interaction and push toward being better tomorrow than we are today. And with the common goal that we all are headed in the same direction. That we might be those as we uh, progress this morning that would bear those burdens with one another. So the why do we do this? Why do we brethren, when we see somebody who is taken in the fall, why do we restore them? Well, we want to clarify, we want to represent Christ clearly. Because in fact, there, that we are brethren, there is concern that we should hold for fellow believers as a result of the common faith that we hold in Jesus Christ. That the fellowship that we enjoy would be near and precious enough that we would stand for it. Not only that, but that we would look forward to the engagement with other believers to the extent that we would be provoked to love and good works, and that we might provoke others to love and good works. He continues on in that first verse, and he says, You who which are, if a man be overtaken in a fault, let's talk about what overtaken means, because uh, for you and I, we tend to interpret this verse as a willful act. And while I suppose it may be, what happens, what the word literally means is that we are caught by surprise. You ever been driving down in the interstate and somebody blows past you? You are overtaken and you are surprised at how fast you were overtaken because I'm really ripping down the road already. And they just move past you like you're not even moving. That's the idea of what is being conveyed here. It's like when I race somebody, they're so fast. I'm slow. I used to be faster. <laughs> it's just the way that it is. Okay? We are overtaken. We are caught by surprise. In Galatians chapter 2, we find an example of this. Galatians chapter 2, uh, we'll remember that in this chapter and in this section, verses 11 through 13, Galatians 2, 11 through 13, Paul is giving this account of his interaction with Peter in Antioch. And Paul says, when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them that were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas was also carried away with their dissimulation. So here we have this, this scene. Here's Peter. He's in Antioch. He's enjoying fellowship with the rest of the body of Christ, these Gentile believers. And they're enjoying fellowship. But when these representatives come from James, so they come from Jerusalem, so they would most likely be Jewish believers. 
and they come and they they show up, Peter has a little bit of a moral dilemma. He's overtaken. He's caught by surprise. He doesn't know what to do. He should have known what to do. And that's why Paul confronts him. Because rather than standing firm that these are the very ones that God has called clean, let's not call them unclean. Remember Peter had that vision. He was the first person to really receive the idea from God himself that the Gentiles will be saved. He should have known better. But rather than do that, he's caught up in their dissimulation, in their division, in their choice to say, listen, we're going to sever fellowship because you're Gentiles. You're you're different than us. And that's where the distinction lied. And And so Paul withstands him. But Peter was overtaken in this, and so was Barnabas. They were caught by surprise in this. This was not necessarily, they should have known better, absolutely. And anytime we're we're overcome in sin, we're caught by surprise, and we find ourselves, how in the world did I get here? We should have known better. That is going to be true for you and I as believers. But the reality was, this was not necessarily a conscious choice. This was something that, and perhaps it was for Peter and for Barnabas, I don't know. But here they were caught by surprise. They, They found themselves in sin, which is not where they intended to be. And that's what Paul articulates in his Romans 7 passage where he articulates his desire to be a servant of Christ, but the things that he would do, that's not what he finds himself doing. He's caught by surprise that, how did I get here? Like when you're driving down the road and all of a sudden, (laughs) how did I get here? You know what happens? We check out. Rather than pursue Christ willingly and diligently, we sort of are coasting along. Resting in our laurels and in the past successes that we may have had. So we have this exhortation, we have this example that we may be caught in sin, that we might get caught up in it. It's not a habitual practice or the pursuit of the believer. This is what I set out to accomplish. In other words, this is the overwhelming of those who are walking in the Spirit by the flesh. Remember that those two things are contrary to one another. And for the most part, we want to pursue Christ and we want to walk in the Spirit and abide in Him. That is our goal. But sometimes the flesh will overcome. It overtakes us. It overwhelms. We are overtaken and caught in sin. And there's this exhortation to you and I. He says, you who are spiritual. In other words, you who are walking in the Spirit. You who are currently successful, as it were. And and I hate to make these distinctions and these these draw these lines in the sand because I feel like they're artificial, but for the sake of understanding. And the reason that I hate to do that is because at some point we're all going to be on one side or the other of that line and we have this roller coaster ride of where am I in my faith? Well the reality is that you and I read in, in Romans chapter eight that we are in the spirit because we are filled with the spirit. That is that we are de facto filled with the spirit. But what it means for us to be walking in the Spirit and and what we may have conveyed and what I may have not conveyed clearly is that when we are walking in the Spirit, we are in a conscious pursuit of God. That we are seeking Him first. That we are being diligent in that pursuit. We are continuing faithful and trusting in the Lord and His Word. 
That is our habit. That is our practice. And that's what the word walk means. What is our actual mode of conduct, our mode of operation? So we who are spiritual, we who are who are walking with Christ, who are abiding in Christ, walking in the Spirit, restore those who are overtaken. That is the exhortation. And the word restore simply means to call back to God. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12, if you will. Now, David is a man after God's own heart by the very testimony and witness of the Word of God itself. But David was not a perfect man. And we find that David was overtaken in a fall. He was consumed with lust. He lied with Bathsheba. He committed adultery. Not only that, he schemed to have Uriah, her husband, murdered. And God confronts him. You who are spiritual, restore someone who is caught in sin. And this is exactly what we read about here in 2 Samuel, verses 1 through 15. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. And he came in and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and one poor. Nathan gives this parable, this example, and, and he continues on. The rich man had an exceeding many flocks and herds, and the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children, and did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flocks and to his own herd to dress up the wayfaring man that was come unto him and took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man it was that was come to him. So there's this picture, right, that here is this rich man. He has all of this abundance. He has all of these flocks, all of these sheep, anything at his own, at his own disposal. And then there's this other guy. And he's got his one little sheep. It's this precious pet that he and his family. And the rich man has a visitor, but rather than take from his abundance, he steals from his neighbor their precious you, their one and only pet sheep. And he fixes it up, feeds it to the guy. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man that has done this thing shall surely die. David realizes the injustice. He realizes the sin that has been committed, how egregious it was. And he says, he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And verse 7 Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives unto thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if, it, and if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee, unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to, to be thy wife and has slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Here he is confronted with his sin. And the, the point is this restoration. God has sent somebody to him who is walking in the spirit that he might confront him with his sin. You've been overtaken, David. You found yourself in a place that you never expected to be because you were not walking in the Spirit. You were out there looking at things that you ought not to be looking at. You were not taking every thought captive to the mind of Christ. You were not laying down your life as a living sacrifice. You were, in essence, whether you intended to or not, caught up in satisfying the, the, the lusts of your flesh. And here you are. You are like that man who stole that sheep. 
You are, in fact, the very one that this parable is about, David. And he lays out before him the sin that he had. Verse 13, And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also has put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. There is this eye toward restoration. God has sent somebody to David, this man after his own heart, that he might restore him, not that he might kill him. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. There is always a consequence of sin. And as we read in the New Testament, we find that the end result of sin is always death. And in this particular instance, there's the death of this precious child who was born as a relationship between David and Bathsheba. It leads to death. But don't miss the restoration. Don't miss what God has done here in bringing David back to a right relationship with him. Giving him opportunity, what did David do when he was confronted with his sin? He said, I confess my sin, and God says, I forgive you of your sin. Just as he does with you and I, 1 John 1, 9. And we do all of this, we commit this. What you don't see Nathan doing is in the midst of this. You don't see Nathan while he had all information in front of him. He's not gossiping. We see that we are told to confront those, to restore those in a spirit of meekness. Remember, as we looked at the fruit of the Spirit, one of those was, in fact, meekness. Meekness, and that means calmness, evenness of composure. Nathan doesn't run in there yelling and screaming or shouting. He is there with the eye and the intent that God has to restore David. He is accusatory, yes, because he is confronting somebody with sin. That's the way that that works but he's not doing so in a way that is, uh, that is gossiping. He goes to David. He's not sharing those struggles that David had with others, although it seems that this is common knowledge because he's given uh, occasion to the enemies. The spirit of meekness would not allow us to take such advantage of those around us. And the way that this sums up, and it sounds very spiritual, but it's really not very spiritual. You know, you, you, we're in our prayer circles, and you know, pray for so and so. Now, now, listen. We how how do you articulate that we need to pray for so and so without saying I need to pray for so and so? Right. We I, I understand the difficulty. I'm just illustrating this. That there are those who do not go with the spirit of meekness. They go with the spirit to gratify the own, their own lusts and desires. I've got this little tasty tidbit. Let me tell you all about it. And we've met those people. We are not those people. We should not be those people, and it's not tolerated. If there's gossip, that has to be dealt with harshly, in my opinion. Because this is a fellowship of believers. We honor one another. We have enough respect for one another that we will consider and love one another that we won't talk about. And it might be that the circumstance would dictate that I have to keep this to myself and I personally will commit to prayer. And I personally will engage in these things without the benefit of being able to share that with the body of Christ. 
It used to drive me crazy uh, when I was a young believer. People would always have these unspoken prayer requests and things like that. And, and I was like, why would we not just articulate them? And, and I understand better now. There are times when we need the body of Christ to pray with us, but I cannot share any information out of respect, out of honor, and a spirit of meekness. I can't give any details. I just need you to pray with me, trusting that God will instruct you how to pray. Even if you don't know how to pray, we can pray for that thing that Sam needs prayer for that we can't talk about. And that's good enough because God knows. We restore those in the spirit of meekness. That spirit of meekness would mean that we are not overwhelmed. Because sometimes when we encounter people who are caught in sin, it is sort of an overwhelming thing. It's an intimidating thing. I'm going to walk into the middle of this, whatever it may be. And we would seek to protect that struggling brother in Christ. There's an eye toward restoration. He gives us this word of caution, however, though. He says, consider thyself, lest thou also tempted. And what we need to realize is that there is a temptation for you and I to fall into the same thing. And even if it isn't to fall into the same thing, there is something, there is a, and we're going to continue this thought through the next several verses. Because the temptation isn't that necessarily we'd fall into the same thing, but it is that we would think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. Verse 3 tells us, if a man think of himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. This will become more clear as we progress, but turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 for just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, for you note-takers. He says, Wherefore, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. There is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above all, above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Right? There is potential that any one of us could fall to any kind of sin, that we might be overtaken. We wouldn't have expected David, this man who, through faith in God, would subdue bears, lions, giants, lead a kingdom. We wouldn't expect him to fall to something like adultery or murder, yet there he was. The person that thinks he stands needs to take heed lest he fall. As, the, as we read in, the old, uh, in, in Proverbs that pride comes before a fall. That's a paraphrase, and that's not 100% accurate. A haughty spirit comes before a fall. Uh, pride is also in there, okay? We have this understanding that we have to be careful. There is no temptation that, taken, that takes you that didn't take somebody else as well. Right? We're, we're not being tempted with all these brand new things that Satan's just over here with this little demonic think tank thinking of new ways that we might be tripped up. It's the same game. It may cam, come and show up differently. Like you ever, <laughs> you ever play different card games and they're different names and they might even have different cards, but it's exactly the same card game as this other game. You know, it's all marketing. It's the same game, different cards, but we're going to sell you this other deck with the same set of rules, and we're just going to change the one name and you know print the cards. It's the same. It's the same with the nature of Satan. We are being tempted in the same way. 
But God is faithful. Now, on Thursday night in Bible study, I asked the question, I said, would God give us more than we could handle? Which is an interesting question because, yes, he would, but no, he won't because the grace that we receive is always sufficient for whatever he gives us. And, then, and so this verse was brought up, and we talked about it for just a moment. Yeah, God won't let us to be tempted above what we, what we are able, but the reason that it is that we are capable to handle is because of what God provides for us. He provides himself a way out. that He extends to us the grace. And we may choose to stay in it, or we, we may choose to take the way out, but it's, you, you could answer that one either way, and we'd have to give you at least partial credit on the test. Right? It's, <laughs> we have to be careful. We need to consider ourselves before we go diving into that. We may find that we are in a place where this is not something that I can engage in. Right? We're going to have to find others to help. That is a very real possibility. And if that's what needs to happen, that's what needs to happen. That's part of what the body of Christ is for. Right? Here we are. We're going to have, we're going to help in restoration. So consider ourselves. Now, to what, right? Here's the why. This is why, this is what we're doing. And, and, and the what is that we are carrying the burdens of others. He says in verse two, bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, obviously the law of Christ, we find it summarized in two things, love God with everything that we are and love man as Christ loved us. That I mean, that is fulfilling all of it. That is the law that Jesus Christ himself gave us. And so by bearing these burdens, it is an expression of love toward the body of Christ, that we would come alongside, that we would take these, and burdens literally means weight, things that are hard to carry. Right? When Paul, if you read through Romans chapter 7, and here he is articulating his struggle with sin, and you see his grief, you see his anguish, you find this burden that he, here it is, my sin, the flesh that I have, is a burden to carry. And we all have the same burden. We're all going to, to whatever degree, find ourselves in the same place. He says in, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, Brethren, we have been called under liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So here we have this liberty in Christ. Liberty, liberty, liberty. There you go. <laughs> Everybody hears the same thing. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, we have this liberty in Christ. But he says, don't let your don't use that liberty as an occasion to the flesh. Now we might take, and that takes all kinds of different forms. Right? That we might we could take occasion by the flesh by not doing something, or we could take occasion for the flesh by doing something. Here, in the instance where we see somebody caught up in sin, not doing something would be taking occasion of the flesh. I'm going to satisfy myself and that I don't want to deal with that. That's hard. That's tough. One of the best pieces of advice when, when I got into ministry was people are messy. <laughs> people are messy. And it's true. I'm messy. Your pastor is messy. The leadership in your church is going to be messy. Your family is going to be messy. People are messy, but you know what? Those that we love, we're willing to wade into the mess. Right? And so he says, 
we're not going to take occasion of the flesh. We're going to serve. And the way that we can that we do that is we show love by bearing that burden, by walking into the mess, by being part of it. Not causing it, by being by being part of it. In John chapter 13. John chapter 13, verses 14 through 15. Jesus says, if I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done. Right, that here is the example. Jesus would be willing to touch the most unseemly, un, un, unclean parts of every person so that he might minister to them that he would take upon him the form of a servant and wash their feet. And he says, I did this so that you would have the example that this is how you ought to treat one another. Not that we would necessarily go around washing each other's feet, but that we would take upon us, let this mind be also you, in, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who though... He was equal with God, thought it not robbery to be called equal with God, but took upon him the form of a servant so that he might die on the cross, that he would give his life for those that he loved. And in the same respect, when we are carrying those burdens, this is what we're doing. We're, we're washing the feet, as it were. We're serving those that we are there with. In Romans chapter 15, Romans chapter 15, we're going to come back to this uh, probably. I think we do. Maybe we don't. I try not to get too redundant in my references anymore because, you know, there's a lot of dead horses around and I beat up on them all the time. Romans 15, verse 1, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now, what this is talking about is in many respects taking occasion, right, I'm not going to stumble somebody because I have the liberty in Christ to do this thing. It's not prohibitive. It's not disruptive. It isn't sin but I'm going to choose not to do it because I don't want to stumble my brother. Right? That's the other way that that, that taking occasion by the flesh can operate. We then who are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. That's what he's talking about. Because you can doesn't necessarily mean you should. If you're going to express love, if you're going to bear the burden of others, then that means that you're not going to have somebody who's in Alcoholics Anonymous over and offer him a beer because we're not limited. You know, We have liberty in Christ to, to, to drink, but you know, maybe that's not, right? That'd be gratifying to our, and we, right, it's the meat sacrificed to idols. We can, but we shouldn't. We have to consider others first. He goes on in verse two, let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. Right here we have this servant mentality that we would that we would put others far above ourselves to the pursuit that we would uh, sacrifice even what we might enjoy for their benefit. This is the hardest part of restoring the struggling brother is carrying the burden with them because. It, it demands from you and I, it demands time, it demands compassion, it demands experiencing the heartache uh, 
uh, of others. And we just have to acknowledge it can be awkward. It can be uncomfortable. But it's what we're commanded to do. It's what we are told to be engaged in. We who are spiritual, if we want to even have the hope of applying that moniker to ourselves, this would be something that we would engage in. It isn't easy. Now, I want to talk about and give you a few things, how we carry burdens, how we might shoulder this burden with that struggling brother. And I did my best to keep this extremely biblical because my thoughts and comments about how we might do that are going to fall short because I'll tell you and I'll confess right now that I am not the best at carrying others' burdens. For me, I'm the one that lets it be awkward, and so I'm just going to take occasion for the flesh and stepping away. And so as I've studied through the book of Galatians, that has been a very convicting thing for me. This is where we ought to be. How do we carry burdens? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. The first step in being able to carry burdens is happening long before we ever are encountered with a burden to help carry. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. Hebrews 5, 14. But strong meat belongs to them that are full of age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now in this passage, there's a comparison being made to the Word of God and and our consumption of it. And there's the milk, the easy things, right? That's what, we're, that's what we are raised on. And we should grow in our understanding and expertise in the use of the word. But Paul, or the author of Hebrews, I tend to think it's Paul, is saying that you who should have been able to, t- to eat the meat, you should have been able to teach, but you're not. You're somebody who needs that milk. You're not ready for strong meat yet. You have this very surface understanding of the Word of God. So therefore, when there is a burden to carry, you're unprepared. Right? It's like showing up to the ski hill with no skis. You know what you're supposed to do. You know that gravity is going to take you down the hill, but you don't have the equipment to do it. You, have no, you can get to the top even, but you're going to walk down. You're not skiing. You're probably going to tumble down. You might do that if you, even if you brought your skis. <laughs> okay, But you understand the point. We're ill-equipped unless we can handle the Word of God. Strong meat belongs to them, right? So those who are full of age, who are come to maturity, and the reason we've come to maturity is by reason of use, that we are engaged with it. Our senses are exercised. They're trained to discern good and evil. Right? We think the Word of God, we understand the Word of God, we, we let the Word of God dwell in us richly, it informs our understanding of the world around us. It's interesting, I've never successfully raised calves from a bottle to anything past the bottle, except for right now. I mean, right now. I've got two calves, and it's interesting because I, I had never, because they've all died long before then. <laughs> so I had to sort of figure out, how do you wean a calf? And it's not nearly as hard as it sounds. I mean, you just sort of wean them off of the milk and they sort of naturally begin. But there's a timing to the whole thing, right? I mean, to me, I was like, well, they're only born with a few teeth. 
and then they have to be ruminating to actually get, you know, so there's, there's a timing to the whole thing that, you know, thankfully the university of Nebraska has a ton of free information and great articles about how you <laughs> do all of this. Probably every other university with an ag program has the same thing, but they were particularly helpful. The long and short is this, that when I first started giving, offering grain and, and these things to these calves, they, they didn't really want anything to do with it. They kind of sniff at it. And so you're like, well, gee, this is, you know, and you really want to get them off the milk because that's expensive and the grain's relatively cheap, you know, so <laughs> as fast as possible. Uh, so you, you do things, right? You, I said, well, mate, they don't like this, obviously. And so I mixed something else in there that I thought would be more desirable to them. Well, that was wrong. They didn't like that any better. So, so I tried different things. And eventually what happened is that all of that fluff and all that stuff, I just got rid of it. And eventually they just got old enough that, hey, this is what we're desiring. We're not getting enough in just the milk and the grass that we're eating. We're, we're, we're looking for more. And the other thing that I noticed is that at some point within there, and I don't know exactly when it happened, I don't know what age it happens at, but I noticed that they were ruminating, right? They're chewing their cud. So they're out there eating grass and then they're consuming it again and again and taking all the nutrients that are available out of it. And in that same picture, we have this illustration of how we grow in the Lord and our understanding of the word. When we first come to it, there is a, there's a, when, they, when they come for their bottles, right? I mean, their little tongues are poking out. They come running. They, <laughs> they really want to, to drink that bottle. They like it. And they suck it down in just a minute. I mean, just fast. And that's how we are when we first come to Christ. There's this desire to be in the Word of God. There's this, this excitement and zeal. We come out running with our little tongues hanging out. Here we are. And then what happens? We begin to transition to this period where we're looking at deeper things, and it's less enjoyable. But right? it's not as fun. It takes a little more effort on my part. I have to actually do some study. And what happens is so many people stall right there. I'm content just taking the surface things, just getting the little bottle here and there, getting that little injection of sweet, milky stuff on a Sunday morning because I don't want to do the work myself. Well, the command to you and I is to study the Word of God. Not, for, not to be fed the Word of God, but that we should be preparing our own meals, that we should be diving in and, and finding those things. And then when we find them, we bring them back up, we ruminate on them, we meditate on the Word of God, and it has its effect within our hearts and lives. That's how it works. And so I fully expect that these calves will continue to eat more and more, and they'll start desiring more and more in that. You know, we've got this heifer out there. She has no interest in taking a bottle whatsoever. She doesn't really want to sniff it. At some point in our walk with the Lord, there should be a desire for the meaty things and no desire in some respect for the milk. We would have progressed beyond, I just, you know, I need more. So for you and I, knowledge of the Word of God will give us a firm grasp on what is right and wrong. It's going to give us a clear understanding of what God would desire and will. And that's important because it prevents us from misrepresenting what God has said or imposing some untrue or unnecessary standard on somebody. If I'm going to say that you are overtaken in sin, that you've been caught by surprise, you're stuck in something, it better be sin. <laughs> right? 
I'm not restoring somebody from liberty in Christ to legalism. I need to be able to identify it. You need to be able to identify it. Not only that, but we need the tool of the Word of God to confront them and give them the clear standard. This is what it is. If we don't know it, how can we represent it? Second, Galatians 5.16, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We're told to consider ourselves in this restorative process, and ultimately that's going to demand of you and I that we are walking in the Spirit, that we are submitted and in pursuit of the Lord, His ways and His purposes. That every morning, at the you know, maybe every other morning, I don't know, it depends, you tell me, right? I'm going to pick up my cross daily and follow Him. That is going to be my conscious pursuit and effort that my life is going to be a living sacrifice, that I'm going to choose to abide with Christ no matter what that costs or what that means and demands of me. I'm going to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And that's going to be my endeavor. At work, at home, at church, in fellowship with other believers, wherever I may find myself, that's my business. Like Jesus told them when He was just a boy, don't you know I need to be about my Father's business? That should be our heart's desire. Now, that's not going to be our heart's desire every single day. There's days that I'm tired and I don't want to get up. I don't want to do the things. We all experience that. That's the living sacrifice part. Do it anyway. It's our reasonable service. It's the very least that we can do to show Christ thankfulness for what he's done for us. So we need to be engaged in the word of God. We need to be walking in the spirit, right? These are prerequisite, and Paul's already covered them in the book of Galatians, but we're building upon that. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. If we're going to bear the burdens of others, if we're going to help them carry those things that they find themselves stuck in, these burdens that they may be engaged with. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him, herein His love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So we have this understanding of the Word of God. We are studying it. We are engaged in it. We are those who are skillful in its use by exercise, by training within it. Not only that, but we purpose to walk in the Spirit day in and day out, in every pursuit that we may be engaged in. And third, we are committed to this expression of love toward the body of Christ, toward this person that may be caught in sin. We do so without any thought of return, which is exactly how Christ loved us. He didn't say, I'll love you, and here's what you have to do on the other side of that so that I'll continue to love you. No. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8, that's how God showed us his love. Here it is, that he would die, that he would be the propitiation, that he would lay down his life and become sin so that we could be made righteous. He gave up everything so that he could become the object of God's wrath in your place and in my place. He made a choice to express love, and it cost him everything. Now, you and I were probably not being asked to lose everything for the sake of restoring a brother. 
But we are being asked to love as Christ loved, to lay something down, to give of our time, to give of those things that we would count near and precious to us. It takes effort. It takes time. We're willing, I'll tell you as a father, I am willing to do whatever. My kids call me anytime, day or night, it doesn't matter. I know that I go to bed early and we tease about it at our house and it's it, we tease about it because it's true, right? We go to bed early, but you call me in the middle of the night, I will be there. No questions asked, whatever you need. And that's always been true and it will always be true. And any parent here will do the same for their kids. And I'll also tell you that I would do the same for anyone in this room, because that's what Christ is demanding of us. That the fellowship that we hold would be so such that we would love those in the family of God the same way that we love those in our family. Doesn't matter if I have a tiff with my kids, we're on a different page, we're in disagreement, whatever it is, doesn't matter, I'm there. The same is true in the body of Christ. It's the example that Christ left us. We were definitely having a little tiff with God when he was willing to come and sacrifice himself for you and I. We were his enemies, in fact, yet what did he do? He laid down everything. And in such regard, if we're going to carry those burdens, we're going to lay something down. To express love properly and in the context of fellowship, it's going to demand something of us. And I don't know what that's going to be in whatever time that's going to be. It will probably be something different with different people. But nonetheless, there it is. We have to commit to paying the price, so to speak. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we find that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. We find that it is not only given by inspiration of God, that it is His very Word, but that it is profitable, that it has a purpose and an intended result. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Right? There's a reason that we build the Word of God into our life before we ever get to having to carry the burden. Because not only does it prepare us so that we may identify it, it gives us this foundation of trust. If the Word of God is what brought you and I to repentance and salvation in Jesus Christ, it is in fact what brings the brother caught in sin to repentance. Jesus said in John 8, 32, the truth will set you free. And it's the same for you and I. It is profitable, it is purposed for correction and for instruction and in righteousness to you and I both. To those who are outside and those who are inside. To the brother who is walking in the Spirit and to the brother who is overtaken in a fault. Now, I realize that it all sounds like it's all about the Word, and in fact, it is all about the Word in, in so many respects. But, but there it is. If we're going to carry a burden, at least those steps, and last step, we have to trust God. It is not going to happen overnight. In fact, it may be that when we first encounter somebody and we interact with them, it may not go as well as it did with Nathan and David. It may go completely the opposite, and there may be a further investment of, Lord, am I even the right person to interact with this person about this particular thing? Lord, is it, prepare their heart for repentance as I, because we're going to make another swing at this, right? I mean, we have to trust God. Not only that, we have to trust God that His Word is sufficient, 
that what he has provided us in his word and in his spirit is enough to bring that person through whatever they're in. That it will, in fact, deliver them from what they're bound to. And in fact, many of the things that we would do to carry a burden are the very things that they're going to do to overcome the same burden. We're just going to be doing it right alongside with them. Galatians chapter 6, verse 3, he says, For if a man think himself to be something, and he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now, even the most confident, what Paul is telling us here is that even the most confident believer could be overcome by the flesh. That any one of us at any moment could be overwhelmed and caught in sin. We must think of ourselves the way that God does. And that's a twofold understanding. Okay? In Luke chapter 18, Luke chapter 18, let me just turn there. Uh, Luke 18, verse 11, if you want to put it in your notes. But in that chapter, Jesus is speaking a parable, and, and there's two people that have gone. There's a publican and a Pharisee, and they've gone to the temple, both of them to pray. The, the publican is standing over here. He won't even lift his eyes to heaven. He's very humbled. He's repentant, and he pounds on his chest, and he says, Lord, be merciful unto me, a sinner. And the publican in verse 11, excuse me, the Pharisee in verse 11 says, he stood and he prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this guy over here, this publican. He doesn't make a comparison. His righteousness is a comparison to other sinners. His, his comparison is not uh, the same standard that God has put forth in his word. And what happens is that we might think ourselves to be something because we're comparing ourselves to other sinners. I can look good compared to other people, right? If I go down and I, and I walk through some jail where that's full of, you know, drug dealers and murderers and rapists and all kinds of, I'm going to look pretty good. <laughs> no, I'm not going to for him. <laughs> <laughs> right, but no, where I'm comparing myself looks bad. Yet here, if I stand amongst other saints and other uh, Paul the Apostle or Peter or, or those guys, and I make a comparison there, I'm, I'm probably feeling pretty small. I compare myself to missionaries or these guys who are just, they've given their life for the Lord. People talked about it in the Fox's Book of Martyrs or wherever it may be. Here they are, and I'm going to feel kind of inadequate. This, the, we are no better than anyone else. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. John 1.8 says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Right? We have to think of ourselves the way that God does. We are sinful people. And while we might be redeemed people, we might be born again, we are justified. The reality is that we still struggle with sin. We are still sinful people. We're just now forgiven sinful people. And I don't want to play that to the extent that we lose sight of our justification and the reality of the standing that we have in Christ, because that's the other side of that coin. Not only are we sinful people, but we are those who are, in fact, redeemed that God has justified us. We are forgiven and filled with the Spirit. We are de facto in the Spirit because of 
that adoption that we've received. These truths are independent of our efforts. They're independent of our skill, independent of our talents. We are all brought to the Lord in the same way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians 3, 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. We're not making a comparison to anyone else. We're comparing ourselves and we're thinking about ourselves the way that God thinks about us, that we are those who are in desperate need of a Savior, that Christ is our Savior. We are sufficient in Him and in Him alone. So I'm not making a comparison to my fallen brother over here, the guy who's stuck in the sin, who's been overtaken, because I look good compared to him. I'm taking heed, I'm taking an honest evaluation of who I am. And he tells us uh, in that same verse, excuse me, in verse 4, he says, Let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. That word prove means to test or assay. That's what they do to determine how much gold there is, how pure it is. Right. So the, the idea is that we are taking an appropriate and honest inventory. Taking an appropriate and honest inventory. And I say appropriate because not we don't need to fall into self-degrading, right? We're, we're not beating ourselves up. That's inappropriate. We are the children of God. That is our appropriate understanding. But it's an honest inventory that I could have fallen to this sin just like that brother did, that I, like David, could have fallen into anything that I didn't really want to fall into. We have to understand that that could be us, that, that though we may have fallen and we could point to others and say, look at that, I'm rejoicing because I'm not like that other guy. No, we rejoice, we take an honest inventory, and we find rejoicing in what God has done and how he has changed us. In Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, he says, what then, are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that all are under sin. Now, there's this description of this Jew and Gentile dichotomy. And, that, and that's what's being talked about here. So Paul is saying, listen, Gentiles, we don't get to say that we're better than Jews, and Jews don't get to say that we're better than them. We've come to faith by the same means. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understand it. There is none that seek after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are altogether become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. So on and so forth. We get the point, right? We are sinners. But on the other side of that, all, are, all have sinned, verse 23, Romans 3. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But he doesn't stop there. He says in verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Right? There's this redeeming power. that We are all who we are because of who he is and what he's done. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. I can make my comparison to any person and I can make myself feel pretty good about who I am. But when I begin to make my comparison to who Christ demands that I must be to be righteous, we understand that we have all fallen short. 
But there is rejoicing to be had when we begin to look at ourselves and say, look, I needed that. Christ completely fulfilled it, that I was important, that he himself would deem me a value that he would give his life. That he himself would adopt me in his family, that he would make me a co-heir with him. Right? We stand in this position and all of a sudden there is rejoicing to be had. We rejoice in ourselves and ultimately that rejoicing is in what God has finished, what he has done, what he is currently doing, what he is moving in you and in me. Verse 5 of Galatians 6, he says, For every man shall bear his own burden. Now, it almost seems contradictory because we're told to bear each other's burdens and everybody's going to bear their own burden. Well, here's the thing. It's two different words in the Greek. One means that this is weighty and heavy. The other one literally means it's a ship's cargo. It, is, it means a bill of laden. This is the ship's cargo. It's what's on board. And we understand it in that way. It's different. The burden of evaluation lies with you and I. We have to determine what is my cargo? What am I packing around? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15, Paul gives this illustration. He tells you and I that there is <clears throat> He says, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Right? So if we think of that foundation as the ship, here we are as believers. What am I going to put on that ship? Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Right? I choose what I'm going to put on there, and I'm responsible for how I conduct myself. I'm forgiven, I am redeemed, and I'm justified. We're not talking about salvation by what we're doing. We're not talking... I'm, but I am responsible before God with how I've represented him, with what I've built on that foundation. So am I going to put good things on there? Or am I going to put bad things on there? That's the idea. We stand before God, and, and, and he says, if any man's work, verse 14, abide, which he has built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burnt, he shall suffer, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. Right there, we're clearly in Christ, we're clearly saved, but there is a decision to be made about what we put on our ship. We are going to bear our own burden. What choice did I make? What, what, what did I put on the boat? What foundation, uh, what things am I building on that foundation? That's all he's saying here. It's not a contradictory statement because it's two different words. It's two different things. The idea for you and I, though, is that because we are here, uh, I don't get to, I'm responsible for what I put on that boat in, in, by God's definition, not by my definition. And not in comparison to how good I was compared to that other person. Right? Good people are good people by comparison to other good people or bad people. None of them are righteous people. We're only righteous in Christ. In verse 6, he says, Let them that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Now, we're going to conclude here this morning because this is in many respects for you and I, this is the 
expression of thankfulness that we should have when somebody comes to us and says, hey, let me bear that burden with you. And I want you to notice, uh, number one, there. Th this is a passage in some respects, it, it confirms that you should pay your pastors, right? The, the, the ox is worth his, his weight and he can eat the grain and all, the, all those things don't muzzle him, right? This is also a point toward that, but, but if we look at it in context, that's not exactly what it's saying. What it is saying is that, first off, and this is why I went so word-centric with how we bear the burdens, he says, let him that is taught in the word, in other words, he who is overtaken in sin, now he's being taught in the word because that's how we bear that burden with him. That's how we restore them. We confront them with truth. The truth will set us free. Sanctify them by thy word. Thy word is truth. Him that is taught in the word, communicate unto him that teaches, that one that is instructing him, all good things. There's an expression of thankfulness. Somebody comes to me and says, hey, Sam, you're, you're stuck in sin. You may not even realize it, but this is what's going on. This is what the word of God says. My proper response should be that of gratitude, of thankfulness, of a communication of all good things. That's what's being discussed here. Now, we could, like I said, we can make an application that this talking about our pastor being worthy of pay or whatever, but that's elsewhere in Scripture. I don't think that's even what is being talked about here. This is the body of Christ working within the body of Christ. And this expression and this understanding of gratitude, not only that, but an expression of the sovereignty of God that he has fitly, he's put me in this little body so that this very thing may be addressed by this very person. And it's an expression of thankfulness, which is not our natural inclination. That's not our first response. When we are confronted with sin, the first thing we want to do is hide it. And it's natural for just about everybody. In John chapter 3, Jesus talks about it. This, the, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is a condemnation. That light came in the world, and men love darkness rather than light. Right? Jesus himself talked about it. John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. In Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10, in that discussion about how we, we would at, receive correction at the hand of God as a response of his love towards us when we are, con, when we are in sin, he says in verse 10, for, the, for they verily, Speaking of our earthly fathers, right? Those that God would give stewardship over us when we are born into this life. Those that he would put over us. Right? Whether we do a great job or a bad job or somewhere in the middle, we make some mistakes and we do some things right. No matter what it is, he says in verse 10, for the verily, for a few days, those fathers chastened us after their own pleasure, after their own understanding, after their best efforts, in other words. But he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. So what we have to understand is this, that when somebody comes and confronts us with that, it isn't that they are being mean or angry or, or accusatory or, or anything like that. It is simply with the eye toward restoring. That they, like our earthly fathers, would try to spare us the heartache and hardship, that they would come alongside and try to bear that burden with us. In Proverbs 27, 
as we close this morning with this, this last verse, Proverbs 27. <clears throat> verses 5 and 6. <clears throat> Open rebuke is better than secret love. I'm going to just pause there for a moment because secret love would be that that we would love the brethren, right? We, we are in fellowship with them, but not enough that I would go there. Right? Open rebuke is better than secret love. He goes on, though, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. It may wound us, it may offend us, it may conflict us when we are confronted by somebody who would love us enough to speak truth into our life, that they would make us accountable to the Word of God, to what God Himself has said, that they would be an instrument to bear that burden with us, to help bring us through, to give us insight. It may wound us, it may offend, it may cause some strife, but ultimately, it is faithful. That somebody would love us enough, just as God would love us enough, to reflect our need for Him in His Word, in that mirror that we encounter, and, and that we would encounter somebody that would engage with us to that level and call us to repentance and bear that burden with us. And be right there in the middle of the mess and the heartache and the hardship and all of those things that are associated with it. Praise be to God who sovereignly brings a Nathan into our lives. Those who are taught the word and are thus delivered are to express thankfulness to those who have taught them. That may take all kinds of forms. It, it may be respect, it may be love, it may be fellowship, it may be thanksgiving, it may be concern, it may be mercy. Here's the thing. Somebody may make a mistake when they come and talk to you about something. And that's okay. They loved you enough that in their understanding of the Word of God, they would say, hey, have you thought about this? And your response would be, thankful. There may be opportunity to follow up. Maybe there's some misunderstanding. Maybe it's, maybe it's just a misread of the situation. No, 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 that's not what's going on. But they loved you enough to, to go there with you. Express that gratitude. It's an expression of thankfulness to what God is doing in the body of Christ in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity that we have to gather. We praise you for the opportunity to be part of the family that you have established. And God, I pray for each one of us here that we might have grace, that we would be recognizing, that we would be understanding of your word to the extent that we might be those who could and would restore those brothers who we may find overcome, overwhelmed in sin. Lord, we pray for those uh, who may find themselves in sin. Lord, we pray for them so that there may be a clear representation of the world around us, whether they be here in our church or in any other church. Lord, we pray for the body of Christ, that it would be restored and made whole. We thank you for the dynamics that we enjoy and the fruit that is born in our lives as a result of being part of something 
that you have established through your son, Jesus Christ. We praise you that he is, in fact, the head of all of it. And Lord, we give thanks for the opportunity that we have now to fellowship. We commit this time into your hands, Lord, asking that we would redeem it well for your honor, for your glory, and for the restoration of your body. We ask this now, we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.